This is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, kids killing kids. How do we come to terms with this? The great debate was last night. Did your favorite federal leader do well? Forget Canadians. China is now ticked off with the NBA and South Park. We'll tell you why. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, just a tragic, tragic story in Hamilton uh, that uh, broke out yesterday afternoon. A 14-year-old boy a boy has uh, been stabbed and died of his injuries outside Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School Monday afternoon. Uh, rep- uh, police say reporters uh, told reporters emergency crews were called uh, to the Main Street East School just before 1.20 p.m., forcing nearby uh, schools and daycares uh, into a brief hold and secure. Uh, the victim, a student at Sir Winston Churchill, was rushed to Hamilton General, where he later died. Uh, the, the boy's mother was with him after he was injured and witnessed the whole um, him passing. Uh, and police say uh, she witnessed uh, something extremely horrible and is extremely distraught. Uh, two people arrested after the incident, a 14-year-old boy and an 18-year-old uh, man as well. A third person arrested around six. Uh, police say that uh, they have been let go. Um, two uh, teens, a girl and a boy, are still outstanding. Uh, police say they've received footage of the incident uh, and encouraged the two outstanding suspects to surrender uh, to police. They will be identified. There is video of this. Uh, police said, what a horrific uh, scenario. A 14-year-old uh, high school boy has lost his life. Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert. He is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, good to join you, Scott. But this is just a horrific crime that is, I, I dare say, probably reaching thousands of people in the Hamilton area with relationships to uh, to this crime. Uh, first degree murder. Uh, how do you arrive at that charge? Well, we've, there's limited information out here, but I can tell you that normally, Scott, you'll see these, you'll see the police charge uh, second degree murder or something, then up it a little bit later. Mm-hmm. I mean, they only lay first degree uh, right off the bat, it's particularly when you're dealing with uh, uh, young suspects, unless they absolutely know it. And it would seem that the, the video of this uh, murder that took place was conclusive, that it was planned. We're hearing stories of uh, pepper spray. Uh, that was found at the scene and might have been used before the stabbing took place. So you've got somebody with a couple of different weapons on them, carrying them for a reason, Um, and that reason was to uh, defend or inflict harm or violence on someone, and they used it for that. So it looks like properly the police have laid the charges that need to be laid here, first-degree murder. Uh, obviously, they, they, they're saying that there, are, uh, there is quite a bit of video on this uh, and know or will identify who the people are. Is that how they arrive at first-degree? And by that, I think first-degree means you have to have intent, correct? Uh, it, not, not just intent, premeditated. Right. So, so somebody carrying a knife, they have not recovered the knife. I, I certainly hope they do, and perhaps it's these other outstanding suspects that may have it. But that knife, uh, to me, would be a little bit telling as to what type of knife it was, Scott. A little uh, a butter knife someone took from home, uh, a folding knife, or perhaps uh, some kind of buck knife that someone was carrying around that they were using while committing other crimes. And it was known that the person used it. Uh, you know, And then using that knife to inflict injuries on this 14-year-old boy is, uh, is just horrific. Uh, what does this do to the school community? I mean, you, you know, if you do what you do for a living, you're used to, to seeing this. I remember there was a video a, a while ago of, uh, and this is totally unrelated, of, of a police takedown. And people were were upset and whatever. And, and it, I think it's because a lot of us don't understand um, the violence and 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 the uh, the chance of violence doing the job that that you do or you did rather, um, and people aren't used to seeing this sort of thing happen. People aren't used to seeing um, these sorts of horrific incidents. Uh, obviously, there were uh, there's video footage. Uh, the mother was there when when the boy passed. But what does this do to a school as far as traumatize uh, the community? Well, it's going to be very traumatizing, even for the emergency responders who were there. There isn't there isn't a, a cop or a, 
a paramedic that shows up or a doctor that works on someone like that that doesn't know a young a young boy or a young girl yeah. uh, themselves who could have been there and it's just it is not an expected thing to see so it's going to have huge ramifications but i think part of what i think needs to be looked into here scott is uh, i understand i saw uh, it was out on the social media before that the stepfather uh, showed up at at the at the scene and was interviewed by a reporter and he claims that the people who did this uh, this murder were the same ones who were bullying his kid all year long. Yeah. So what I want to know, Scott, and I think what everybody needs to know when they have their kids in schools, what is being done to protect these children? Who knew that this sort of uh, uh, bullying was going on that I would say it sounds like, what did it border on, criminal harassment? With their threats of violence, were the police notified? I mean, I'm looking now, I've got a copy, you can find it online, of the Hamilton Police School Board protocol for how they're supposed to deal with issues like this. And there's mandatory things they're supposed to notify uh, the police about. Was this known before? Was How was this dealt with? Does the school have the resources to deal with this? Do the police? Did we let this slide? I tell you, Scott, I look at our, our youths. 14-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, they deserve protection. They're not supposed to be figuring out how to deal with someone who pulls a knife on them or is threatening to stab them or steals their their bike and people running around with pepper spray. That's for the adults and the institutions to make sure that the first sign of that, uh, it's acted upon and these kids are protected. They, they, just, they just should not be uh, left on their own to this. Uh, here's what uh, uh, the Hamilton District uh, School Board had to say. This is Manny Fieger on what's happening after the fact. We have people who want to speak one-to-one individually. We have people who want to speak in groups to, to speak about uh, you know, how they're feeling and trying to make sense of, of this act of violence. Then there are situations where whole class discussions might emerge where a teacher feels that it's important that a lot of students have questions and then someone is available as well. Right now, we have a crisis response intervention team here, social workers, uh, guidance counselors. We also have um, supports for our staff from our human resource uh, division to provide wellness counseling. So it's all hands on deck right now. And some parents have made the choice, uh, and we respect that if some of them have kept their uh, students and children at home, but a large number of our students are, are present here today. You know, you bring up a valid point, Ross. You wonder if that kind of attention is paid prior to an event like this. You, you, you just nailed it. Look at all the resources that are being brought in after a child is murdered. Social workers, people asking discussions. Uh, let's find out what happened. Let's deal with the grief of this. Uh, and I don't want to prejudge this, Scott. I do not want to prejudge yeah. this. But I think the school needs to take, the school board needs to take a real look to see if if what happened to this boy was dealt with properly. I suspect his stepfather, I mean, I don't know this, but let's look. Had he come into the school and complained before? I, I've dealt with other parents and other students who they get blown off when they come in to talk about this fear of being attacked, of being bullied. They don't really get protected. Uh, not much happens. I'm not saying that happened in this case, but we need to find out. There's no way that a kid should have to put up uh, with a bullying that ends up with his bicycle being stolen and then being murdered, apparently, with his mother uh, right in right in view of it as they were trying to get the bicycle back. There needs to be somebody there to deal with uh, an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old with a knife and with pepper spray, who obviously it looks like were premeditated in what they were able to do. That needs to be dealt with by a police force to deal with that. You know, do they have cops in this school that, that can deal with these things? It's just, uh, I, I think that these youths, they're, they're our most valuable possession. And to have this happen, I think it needs to be looked into if there was something that was missed or not taken seriously earlier. A uh, 14-year-old victim uh, as well, one of the people charged, um, also 14-year-old, and then an 18-year-old. What does it say with that vast age difference? Well, I mean, look at it. I mean, for... You know, whoever the, the, the parents are of these other these other children, and for any parent out there, if you've got a kid who's 14 years old hanging out with someone who's 18 years old, that's not appropriate. It makes no sense for that to take place. That's a red flag. It, 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 right away. What, what are you doing hanging out with an 18-year-old uh, for doing that? Parents, 
uh, have to protect their children, you know. And uh, this is something that I don't think we see enough of. When we have father absences and, and problems like this, like here you've got a mother who I assume was, was possibly a single mother trying to deal with this uh, to do the job. Uh, but dealing with a knife and criminal activity it shouldn't take place. Parents need to go through their kids' stuff. I don't care who your kid is. Go through their stuff. If they've got a buck knife on them, you, you, you take that off of them and you deal with them for doing that. You know, I, I've had parents come up to me when the, when the police here in Toronto have kicked down their door, uh, slapped a warrant in their face, ran downstairs and arrested their kid and pulled them out with a gun. And the parents, and I talk to these parents, they're, they're, they're new Canadians, uh, they're both working double jobs. They had no idea what was going on within their kid's life for doing this, and they had to do it. So don't take it for granted. I mean, if these problems are going on and getting near your kids, you got to do your job uh, to try and protect your kids from uh, from these these people out here who are doing this criminal influence. Uh, it seems we hear a lot about gun crime, a lot of chatter about gun crime of late. This no gun knife. What are your thoughts on that? Well, knife crimes, in many ways, you asked just about any police officer, they'd rather deal with someone with a gun than someone with a knife when it comes to struggling, because knives are very, very dangerous. They cut, they injure, and as we're seeing, uh, if you follow anything that goes on over in London and the UK, knife crime is, is just out of control over there. And what you'll find, you talk to many of these kids, and uh, when I say kids too, Scott, I, I, I want to let parents know, girls have a problem with this too in these schools mm-hmm. where, where I've heard from them that they're scared to go to school because or, or they'll carry a knife themselves for protection. If you remember when we had uh, Sammy Yatim that was shot so long ago in Toronto on yep. the streetcar, yep. you know, the story was that he had his knife that he pulled, but he, you know, he had it for protection because everybody else had them. Well, if we've got kids running around in schools carrying knives, I think the school need to be aware of this and they need to deal with it. We, we can't, we can't lose our, our young people like this. Uh, what does it say when, you know, again, going back to the weaponry here, you know, a lot of people are talking about gun control and banning guns and what have you, uh, as if, if you did that, you would, you would solve the problem. And then you have to wonder if when that does happen, we just don't see an increase in this sort of thing. Because again, as you said, you can get one of these any, anywhere. Well, and you look at uh, just just the ecosystem, the swamp that these kids are living in these days of violence and of crime that's available uh, through media, through TV shows, through the HBOs, the Netflix. You know, even now we're seeing you know, we got this new movie, The Joker, out, which is supposed to be horrifically violent. Uh, I've, you know, I, I, I canceled my cable a long time ago when I when I over at other people's places, I flip around the channels and I come across people stabbing each other in the head and busting skulls open just when you're flicking through the channels. So the kids are seeing this and, and they're exposed to so many of what are the, basically the anti-heroes today, Scott, where the gangster, the breaking bad guy, the Tony Soprano is the hero. And you know, the, the shows end with, they murdered someone and they're going to go off and they'll deal with their problems again next week. You know, the, if your kids are watching a lot of this, it can influence them. You know, they need to be able to see some balance of, of what it means to handle yourself correctly in society. And as you, and as you mentioned, you know, uh, communication with your kids, just knowing what they're up to, making sure you're having a conversation around the dinner table, just to know where their head's at. Yep. And, and, you know, but so many of these kids, I just come back to this, they're bullied and they make it aware that they're bullied and, and they do not get, they do not get the response from the schools uh, that are actually going to protect them. I mean, the police should be able to go in and, and deal with these kids if someone says they're being threatened. I mean, I'm looking here, actually, at the at the protocol that says discretionary notification of police. It's discretionary for the principal to notify the police if a child has threats of serious physical injury, including threats made on social networking sites or through instant messaging, text messaging, and an email. So think about that. It's discretionary if your kid gets told he's going to get his head crushed or get stabbed or someone wants to kill him. It's discretionary. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that it should be. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert. RossMcLeanSecurity.com. As always, Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. And my prayers go out to everybody involved in this, Scott. It's just awful. It's thanks it's it's me. it's horrific. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR guru. Alyssa Freeman, PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Hello, Scott. You know, I talked to pollsters ahead of this uh, uh, big show last night, the big uh, dog and pony show, and um, many were hoping that something would happen to to, to break the juggernaut, the the neck and neck uh, pulse that we've seen of late. Uh, do you think? Did you see anything that would have uh, punted one leader out ahead of the other last night? No, because of the format, and I think that the media did a great disservice by trying to do what they did yesterday. Uh, I don't know why they try I mean, to make this look like a reality show. Uh, I mean, we just need know. something really boring where there's one moderator and they just ask the same question to all the leaders and let, like, why are we trying to make this engaging? Oh, well, <laughs> listen, why not, right? So you have five moderators, and then you have uh, six uh, people debating, and then you have five different questions, and then on top of that, you have three different ways of engaging. So what would make you think that we'd actually get a sense of what was going on? <laughs> it was ridiculous. And then yeah. after Lisa Laflamme switched over, they switched over to the second moderator, I'm like, well, why did she leave? Yeah. Get back here. Because yeah. I can tell you that I have seen some of those moderators in different settings, for example, at a conference. Oh, yes, I've moderated conferences before. Let me tell you something, Scott. Moderating a debate on TV is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, and yeah. unless your name is Lisa LaFlamme yeah. or Rosie Barton or even Don Friesen, yeah. nobody else should be doing it. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, their, their weaknesses were blatant. And these are very accomplished people yeah. in their own right. Yeah. Okay? Very accomplished people. But they were not in the right setting. So there was that. There was the control of the whole thing. I thought, you know, at one point my husband says to me, is Trudeau still there? I know, I know. It's and you know what? And and you know that strategy. You just sit there, stay low, let the other ones take up the time, suck the oxygen out of the room, and you know, especially with the debate portion of all of this, which to me seemed like a total waste of time. Because if you've got a minute to debate, whoever starts first is going to use as much time as they can to leave their opponent with even less. So it, sort of timing one another, and 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 really, the person who kind of brought it back was. Uh, Rosie Barton at the yeah. end going, okay, time's up next. Yeah. And, and I felt that there was almost too much posturing from the, um, from the moderators. Like, we don't care if you think that he was speaking enough so, uh, or, didn't sp- or was speaking too much. Right. Just ask the next question. That's all you're, you're just there as a referee. We're not too concerned about your opinion. Yeah. And, and also, you know, there's this big question, you know, why was Yves Blanchette there? I mean, I know why Yves Blanchette was there. It was yeah. a national program and it's part of a national voice. And I guess it's great to hear that Quebecers really don't care what other Canadians think. But geez, Like we need to hear that again. Well, <laughs> I, it hasn't that been since the 60s. Yes. Tell me something else I don't know. Yeah. So, and, and then there was like a lot of, you know, and I felt like by having, quote unquote, extra people, that it takes away from pe- the people that, you know, you really want to hear the issues on. Well, there's the fine balance because, you know, maybe many say, well, it's all the mainstream politicians and there's never any change. So then when you add more fringe to the to the event and and, and start exploring in those issues, but it's great, but it takes away from other stuff as well. Well, and that's the thing. So people said, you know, Trudeau didn't get to do what he does best. Look in the camera and speak to Canadians. So he never really got to do that really until the end. Um, but I think that he got out of there unscathed. I, think I agree. It was best case scenario for Trudeau. Yep. And it seemed that everybody was jumping onto Sheer. And I read one tweet that very astutely put it saying people are, are more fearful of a conservative government than they are of Justin Trudeau. Yeah. And that has to be why everybody jumped on Andrew Sheer. Now, his delivery was, it was uh, the same. You yep. know, his voice never went up. His voice never went down. The only yep. time he got a little bit heated is when he turned to Maxime Bernier and he goes, I don't know which politician you are, which Maxime Bernier I'm yeah. speaking to, which I have to say was a... I also was, thought his uh, line was pretty good when uh, Prime Minister, the Prime Minister mentioned Doug Ford for the fourth time, and yes, I was keeping track. Uh, when he mentioned Doug Ford for the four, fourth time, he said something along the lines of, and I'm sure I'm going to deliver it better than he did, something along the lines of, if you're so interested in provincial politics, why don't you go run for the Ontario Liberals? I understand they're looking for a leader. So, I thought that was great. Yeah. I thought that was a great, very, very quick on his feet, something very un-Andrew Shear-like. Yeah. And what uh, about him coming out? Yeah. What about him coming out right at the beginning with guns a blazing and, and, and wow. immediately uh, bringing up the blackface and you're unfit to govern? Um, many conservatives think that that is a score, and I guess it is because that clip has been used a lot in, over newscasts and such. But I, it just seemed kind of awkward to me. It was like it was it, it was very premeditated. 
Yeah, and I don't think that Andrew Scheer really cared what anybody else thought, because you have to remember, you know, Scheer does what also Trump does. He talks to his base. Doesn't care what liberals think. Doesn't care if the people thought, oh, how terrible yeah. you went after him and you didn't come out with some sort of statesman-like statement. No, I only have so much time, and you saw how the rest of the debate went. And if Yeah, I guess, you know what, considering how the rest of the debate went, perhaps it was better he did that at the beginning. And I think that the people who advise and people say, like, why did he do that? No, I heard that part on the radio coming in, and I have to say I almost drove off the road. However, when you think back on it, it's like, well, you know what, maybe that's what his base wants to hear. Maybe that's what people in the West want to hear. They're never going to vote liberal. He can say whatever he wants about Trudeau. And when else is he going to have the opportunity to um, to say that? So uh, strategically, it was an interesting move. I, I didn't really agree with it at the beginning, but, you know, upon reflection, it might have been the best time for him to say that. And as you mentioned, I think if uh, in the liberal war room today, they're thinking we got out of that pretty much unscathed. That's a win for us. Yes, I think so. But, you know, they have really plummeted in the polls. And I think that... Yes, it is a it is a win. Now we have to campaign hard, hard, hard over the next two weeks because the margin of error is almost negligible. And I mean, many people said that Jagmeet Singh um, won the debate. He is a beautiful debater and yeah. a beautiful orator, and he did have the big line, yep. you know, Mister Delay, Mister Deny, yep. and that's the one that's been oft repeated. But you know what? Great lines don't win you necessarily an election. Well, I think people but, are looking at Andrew Shear and or, uh, sorry, Jagmeet Singh and, th- and saying perhaps you know what? Great leader, wrong party. But haven't we been saying that forever about many of the yep. NDP leaders ever since yep. the days of Ed Broadbent? And you and I have discussed this. It's like, great guy, wrong party. Yep. But what he did do, maybe, was that he might split the progressive vote. So people who really aren't ready to vote for the Greens and really don't want to vote for the Liberals because of Trudeau may just vote for NDP. So right. he does play a role. Like he's, he's still saying, I want to be prime minister. But what he's also saying is, I could come up as a giant killer here. So could he split the left, or is that more a concern once a minority government is formed? Yeah, it's interesting. People are saying that he could split the left, and maybe he could be the official opposition. I don't know. I mean, when I think about who I want in the official opposition... Wow, could you uh, see that? I, I know I don't want it to be the Greens. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I just don't think so. So I, I think there were some very um, oft-repeated narrative tropes that people still try to get in. And I believe that what we're going to see in the next two weeks is that the big, hard ads are coming out now. This is where the gloves are off and the attacks will really start in earnest. And, you know, I heard an interview with Lisa Raitt, who really should be running the Conservative Party. Either that or Ronna Ambrose, man. Lisa Raitt or Ronna Ambrose. One of the two should be there. Lisa Raitt, I'm like, where, why isn't this woman heading up the party? I mean, she did run. I agree, I agree. And they asked her, and this interview's been played, and they said to her, it's like, you know, what do you think about this election? And it was the first time she paused in an answer. She says, I got to tell you, it hasn't been a great one. It hasn't been a great one for me. We have two more weeks to go. We're talking about things that really aren't helping our constituents. And it was a really, really honest answer from somebody who has been in the trenches. And I think that she she really hit the nail on the head. Hmm. I think a lot of them didn't want to run this election. They just figured that Trudeau would get a second mandate without any questions asked. I don't think they thought there'd be the turmoil and that it would be this close a race in the end. And, you know, you keep hearing things from the media. There's more to drop. There's other stories that people are sitting on. And, well, if there are, when are they going to drop? And then you and I have also talked about uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's book tour. Well, I know that that book tour is kicked off, but I've heard nary a word. Zero about it, yeah. Whereas I thought that that might have an effect going from coast to coast, really, Unless I'm wrong and it hasn't kicked off already, I haven't. It hasn't had any impact at all. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, did the strategies uh, strategies used by leaders work in their favor? Let's bring in Yaroslav Baron, Principal Earnscliff Strategy Group, and is with us now. Yaroslav, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, it's, uh, it's good to be here. Your thoughts on what you saw last night? Were there Was there a clear winner? You know, uh, whenever there's a leaders debate, people tend to uh, to ask that question. Were there any knockout punches? Yep. Who won the debate? And so on. My take on it is that, you know, that's the wrong question. 
Uh, debate really never has a winner because not everybody is looking to do the same things. Mm-hmm. Every leader has a certain thing, uh, a certain uh, set of things that they need to do that they ought to do based on their circumstances. Right. So frankly, at the end of the debate, uh, what we should be doing is checking each each leader and measuring them against what they had to do and whether they fulfilled their own personal objectives. That's a good idea. Start with the prime minister. Many said they didn't hear a lot from him. Many thought they were, he was lying low. Is that a great strategy for them? Well, you know, it, it's certainly a front-runner strategy. He, uh, he took a pretty risk-free approach. Um, what a lot of people have said, and I, and I observed this myself, is that he seemed a little bit stiff. He seemed a little bit wooden. Uh, we didn't see that usual Trudeau charisma come out yesterday. And frankly, he looked a little bit nervous. Uh, it was even reflected in the way he was dressed. He was wearing a very monochrome white shirt, black tie black suit i mean it's better than black face but you know black suit white shirt. <laughs> so it was very everything about his performance was just kind of drab yesterday so um his strong suit frankly is his natural charisma and the way he can speak to vision and we didn't see any of that yesterday he's very much different in a positive sort of sunny ways disposition than he is when he has to be critical or or even negative about something yeah, that's true. And look, he's been under attack uh, over his record and over his misdeeds. And the best way for him, the most effective way for him to fend that off is to try to turn, uh, you know, try, try to turn the page, change the channel and to start talking about the kind of values that he likes to talk about. And I don't get why he didn't quite do that as well as he, uh, as he normally does. Uh, perhaps because he was more on a defensive mode. Your thoughts on Andrew Shear's performance? Well, Andrew, uh, look, Andrew had to do a different set of things. Um, you know, uh, in terms of disclosure, I've known Andrew personally for almost 20 years. I know the guy. I know, I know what he is. I know what he isn't. Uh, he's been running uh, a campaign to really define himself and his party as a champion of regular folks, you know, talking about things like affordability and, you know, the cost of putting mm-hmm. your kids in activities and, you know, just staying on top of inflation when you're trying to, you know, balance your, you know, your, your checkbook and so on. So that's the campaign he's been running. The liberals have been working hard to recast him, not as like a normal moderate champion of the little guy, but as an, as an ideologue, as a zealot, which, which he isn't. But, you know, if you succeed in painting somebody like, that way, then it, it works. So um, his his job was to fend off those attacks and not be painted as a zealot. I think he did that. I think he came across uh, as being on message by and large uh, that, look, this is what we're focusing on. People need to get ahead. It's getting harder to get ahead. We're offering tax cuts and, and tax credits, the kinds of things that people need. So for him, it wasn't really about coming out of this as Mr. Charisma and actually wowing everybody with his golden oratory. It was about being himself and mm. not allowing other people to portray to portray him as something other than that. What about his initial, uh, his initial opening uh, statements where uh, they were talking about leadership and he immediately just started attacking the prime minister, brought up the blackface issue, blackface issue, said he wasn't fit to govern all this sort of stuff. At the beginning, it kind of looked like over the top. I'm thinking, my goodness, that's, you know, is that uh, uh, prime ministerial? On the other hand, the way the whole thing shook down and the way that it was kind of disjointed in its presentation, that seems to have stood out for him. So I guess that's a win. Sure. Uh, it's a good question and something we should reflect on. First of all, if, you know, let's, let's play a little mind game with ourselves. Imagine for a second Justin Trudeau in a position where he's calling somebody out for racism. If he did that, we'd all say, wow, you know, good for you. So I think a lot of it is confirmation bias. We bring our own predispositions into evaluating those kinds of moments. But um, more importantly, I think like that was a tactical move. It was, you know, people talk about knockout punches. Was there a knockout punch? Did somebody win? Um, That move, it wasn't a knockout punch because it wasn't an actual exchange. You need an exchange between two people, like in the same frame for that to happen. But what that was, though, it was a guaranteed clip. So he guaranteed that nice, tight line, which is important in terms of his offensive messaging on uh, on the government. Uh, He guaranteed that that clip was going to be everywhere. And from a tactical point of view, it was uh, that was a win. 
Uh, Jugmeet Singh, lots talking about him today. Uh, he, he certainly presented himself uh, uh, very appropriately and respectfully last night. Uh, at one point during the beginning of this campaign, it, there was chatter as if uh, the Greens may overtake the NDP in third-party status or as, as everyone's protest vote, vote, so to speak. He looked like he solidified his position last night. Yeah, his performance was very good. Um, I, I would frankly say that both he and Elizabeth May performed very well. Look, the stakes were lower for the two of them than they were for the two front runners. Yeah. So they could afford to sort of, you know, let their guard down a little bit, to maybe be a little bit more experimental, be a little bit more, be a little bit more fluid. Um, you know, the, and, the, and the nerves aren't, aren't there to the same degree when you don't have as much to lose. Like it's all, it's all upside for them. So both of them performed admirably. They both looked very much themselves. They did not look nervous. They did not look stiff. And they could afford to sort of uh, speak spontaneously at a moment. I think they both did themselves a whole lot of good yesterday. Uh, what about the fact that we have fringe parties such as the Maxime Bernier, or well, the, certainly not a fringe in Quebec, but the Bloc, who have really come on? Uh, many say we need these in order to 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 expand what the mainstream parties are talking about. Many complained that this was just everything got lost in the sauce. Too many people on stage, too many moderators. Is it best just to go back to the old-fashioned dull with one person just? reading boring, pertinent questions uh, from the audience and let everybody answer. I mean, it seems when we went into the debate debate mode, uh, the object was to just take up the other person's time. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it, it, look, the, the networks basically hijacked the format and it was all designed to be good for TV, to be good for the networks and to be good for clips and sound bites rather than actual exchanges. Yeah. So that's a format issue. Uh, in addition to that, the more people you have participating, the more difficult it is to have a genuine debate because you got to just kind of parcel it out into tiny little chunks. So, look, um, the fewer people there are, the more you can have genuine debate. When you have so many people, as we had yesterday, it makes it tougher. Uh, as far as the appropriateness of having them on, like they they are running parties, they are running candidates, uh, you know, in, in Max's case across the country, mm-hmm. almost. And for the Bloc Québécois province-wide in Quebec, so we cannot, as much as somebody might want to, we can't deny that they are actually uh, a force, certainly on paper. In terms of content, um, look, uh, the the, the Bloc Québécois leader, he wasn't really speaking to anybody. He didn't have an audience. Francophone Quebecers tend to not be watching the English language debate. And his audience is Francophone Quebecers. And, you know, it's not even Francophone Ontarians because there are no Black Quebecois you know, yep. uh, candidates in eastern Ontario. So he didn't really have an audience. He was there basically just to, to demonstrate again that, the, that they're still a force, that they're not dead. Uh, as far as Max goes, I think what he did, like public enemy number one for him was, was really Andrew Scheer out of it because it was personal vendetta. Yep. But what he ended up doing inadvertently is... Uh, casting Andrew Scheer as much more of a moderate. Hmm. So Max actually, you know, helped Andrew uh, because Andrew looks a heck of a lot more moderate to those purple, you know, vote switchers who, hmm. you know, from election to election decide between the between the Tories and the Grits. Yaroslav Baran has been with us, principal, Earnscliff Strategy Group, talking about last night's debate. Uh, Yaroslav, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Always good to be back. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, what do uh, South Park and the NBA have in common? They're both in trouble with the Communist Party of China. The censorship was brought down on the Houston Rockets team after the general manager tweeted support for the Hong Kong protests. Of course, the Hong Kong protests have been going on for weeks now, uh, virtually every weekend. The latest in regard to wearing masks while demonstrating. This all started, of course, when um, Hong Kong announced that if uh, somebody was charged in Hong Kong, that they could be tried in China. This law eventually withdrawn, but still uh, Hong Kong feeling the stranglehold of China, and that, of course, the source of these protests. The general manager of the Houston Rockets uh, tweeted support for those uh, uh, protests. As a result, the Chinese government spoke up. South Park then lampooned the Chinese government and offered a fake apology saying saying that, 
quote, like the NBA, we welcome the Chinese censors into our homes and our hearts. Uh, we too love money more than freedom and democracy. Here is a clip from the South Park show. I can't do it anymore, you guys. I can't even think with the Chinese government censoring everything I write. So there's not going to be a biopic movie for us? It's so wrong. You know, I mean, we live in a time where the only movies that us American kids go see are ones that are approved by China. Yeah, it's like China is the new MPAA. Stinks to say goodbye to all that biopic money and glory. We just gotta face it. A death metal band is never gonna make real money anymore. The only band that would get approved by China would be all vanilla and cheesy. All right, let's bring in Charles Burton, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University, is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good to speak with you, Scott. It seems that with all of the trying things that we're talking about China, uh, in regard to China, whether it's detainees, whether it's uh, the CFO from Huawei, this seems kind of trite, seems kind of foolish. How come this is making such an impact? Well, it's a serious matter, really. I mean, if companies that rely on Chinese business are required to comply with Chinese Communist Party authoritarian one-party norms, Um, That means that we're constrained in our freedom of expression here in Canada. Uh, You know, the NBA is one thing. They have an enormous market there in China, and and, uh, so their general manager was almost fired. I don't imagine he's got much of a future there anyway, because he stated a perfectly valid opinion about the Hong Kong demonstrations. But you're also looking at Hollywood movies, which um, have an enormous market in China, in some cases more screens than in the United States. And so then it comes down to Disney and other companies wanting to make sure that their product doesn't offend the Chinese Communist Party in any sort of way. So don't expect any Chinese villains in James Bond or any kinds of Hmm. uh, sympathy for democracy, because when you're dealing with a Chinese company, a film distribution company, you're not dealing with a company, you're dealing with the entire Chinese regime And that means we have to either comply with what they want or they will use their economic leverage to cause us uh, suffering if we don't. So, in other words, you cannot pick on the golden goose. No, I mean, it it, it gets to the point where you look at something like Brock University, where I work, where we've got, you know, well over a thousand self-paying students from the People's Republic of China. The Chinese government could turn those students off like a tap by refusing to give exit permission to Mm -hmm. students studying at Brock if they have some reason to think that Brock is having professors saying things that the Chinese regime would prefer not to be said. So, you know, it hasn't got to that extreme yet, but the potential is certainly there. And it's really a question of, of can we give up our commitment to freedom of speech and democracy because we don't want to offend the government of China, which is in effective control of all of the companies that consume uh, products from uh, imported in from abroad. And it's a huge market that's increasingly important to the auto sector, um, agricultural commodities in Canada, and uh, even sports teams. So uh, in the past, was it acceptable to bend for that golden goose? Is it different now? And is that due to the situation with the Huawei CFO and the detainment of of Canadians and such? Um, Is that attitude changing? I mean, I I guess if the the Houston Rockets are so ticked off that that now they fired the general manager, they don't seem to be willing to, to, to recognize what's really going on. No, I mean, they have made some statements, and it was interesting that the Rockets press release in Chinese was quite different from the one in English. There was a lot more groveling in the Chinese version. I I think a lot of Chinese people feel that their language is like an encrypted code, and people like me can't read it. They're wrong on that. But uh, no, I don't think it's ever justified to compromise on principles. I mean, one might see, perhaps if you were wanting to distribute a movie in China, that you might want to cut down on, say, moral grounds, you know, if if Chinese people, if Chinese movies wouldn't be acceptable because they depicted um, sexual acts or spoke favorably of, of uh, certain practices, maybe you would consider compromising on that on the basis of what the audience there would find acceptable. But uh, when it comes down to political matters, and I think that's a step too far, And it's going to be increasingly a problem for Canada in our dealings with China as China becomes more and more important to our national prosperity and therefore has more and more leverage 
over our, our companies and over our governments. And the question is, will our democracy have to compromise to Chinese values because China is such an important economic player? So do we look at this issue differently now than we would have 10 years ago? Oh, or or didn't have that leverage, you know. Or are we so inter- or are we so interwoven with their economy that it's too late now? I don't I think in the past China would have been more accepting of different norms, you know, the the idea of Hollywood um vetting their movies to suit the Chinese censors was not a thing when when this started out because they didn't have that leverage because they just the Hollywood uh, product was just not um, as prevalent in China. Their consumers couldn't, couldn't uh, pay for those movies the way they can now. And, of course, we know a lot more about that regime since we've seen the arrest of Michael Kovrick and Michael Saver and the retaliatory measures taken against our agricultural commodities, including canola seeds and meat. And so I think from that point of view, we should be more sensitive to the extent to which we bend to the will of of China if we want to maintain our integrity and our Canadian values in in being able to speak out frankly and to and to not have to compromise our Canadian standards to suit the standards imposed by a regime that that is politically repugnant to us. What does this situation with these entertainment uh, organizations, what does this do for North American-China relations? Does China care or do they just censor their way in? You know, you want it here, yeah, it's going to be censored, we don't care about this. Or are they actually very insulted by what they are uh, uh, censoring? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the NBA has a, has a choice. They can not go into the Chinese market because China demands that they compromise if they do. Um, or or China can simply decide that they're not going to allow basketball and have some other sport uh, take that, that market space. So, you know, from that point of view, we don't have a lot of um, flexibility there. I don't think there's a lot of space for compromise. We have to make a choice one way or another, and China will definitely make a choice that suits the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, this issue with the NBA team and with what South Park is doing, is that just a humorous aside to all of this? Or are we to learn something from this? Well, I think South Park is not something that we have to worry about too much. They don't have any market in China. The Chinese state-controlled media is never going to show that cartoon. With regard to the NBA, I think this is a more symbolic thing. It's not just about basketball. It's about every kind of company which has dependence on the Chinese market, and there are a lot of them. And so does that mean that all of their employees are required to censor themselves on social media and public statements in their personal capacities? Because if they don't, their companies will suffer retaliation. Considering uh, considering where uh, things are going with China now, the issues that they're having with trade in the United States, what's happening uh, with Hong Kong, is the attitude of the world changing in their view of Hong Kong? And is Hong Kong, cons- or sorry, in uh, China, and is China concerned of that? Is, is China concerned that uh, 10, 20 years ago, we were willing to do pretty much anything to invest and get a piece of that market? Uh, now, uh, are capitalists, uh, are capitalists um, uh, challenging that? Are they questioning whether this is the right move? Or at the end, is, does the buck speak? Well, I don't think Hong Kong will ever recover from this. A lot of companies are already moving their headquarters into Singapore and other places roundabout because they don't see a future for Hong Kong. And I think certainly some of the things we're learning about the Chinese regime, such as the internment in concentration camps of these uh, Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims and their Chinese government's program of cultural genocide, really does give companies pause as to whether they should only be concerned about maximizing profits for their shareholders, or should they be also having an element of corporate responsibility and just say, we cannot collaborate with a regime that does these kinds of horrendous crimes against humanity. You, you just said no future for Hong Kong. How how would China react to that? Are, are they aware that 
what they're doing will, in the end, uh, uh, severely crimp China, or sorry, Hong Kong will severely restrict their ability. What happens when China has more of a role in Hong Kong and Hong Kong is no longer as valuable as it once was? Do they look inward and say, hey, maybe we did this wrong, maybe we handled this wrong? Uh, Again, going back to the old days when, uh, before the the handover of Hong Kong back to China, more thought that China would, would react more like Hong Kong instead of taking Hong Kong and, 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 and moving it backwards to the days of China. That was definitely our thought, that by 50 years from 1997, which was the promise of China of 50 years, no change, that there wouldn't be an issue because China itself would have come into compliance with international norms of governance and, and uh, democracy and human rights. That hasn't happened. I mean, certainly from the point of view of China, a lot of the senior leadership of China have families with extensive holdings in Hong Kong. In other words, money that's been derived through ways which are not transparent, which are being held safely in Hong Kong in a different currency zone against some changes in China that might affect them negatively. But, um, you know, and the bottom line is that China... uh, is a country of 1,500 million population. Hong Kong is about 7 million. So it's not a major element compared to China. And I think China's main concern is if there's political disruption in Hong Kong, that it could then transfer to cities inside China and that, that they'd start to see protests against their rule, not just in Hong Kong, but in right. hundreds of cities in the interior. So what if we look 10 years down the road and Hong Kong is a, sh- a shadow of its former self, uh, economically, culturally, what have you? Uh, does China view that as a win? Uh, we have um, neutralized Hong Kong as opposed to cashing in on its wealth? Absolutely. I think that there is concern that Hong Kong's vibrant democratic country, freedom of the press, independent rule of law is something that China now finds threatening. The fact that Hong Kong could lose its role as an important uh, financial center that benefits China and the world is of lesser concern. I mean, after all, the purpose of the Chinese regime is to maintain the unquestioned authority of the Chinese Communist Party as the rulers of China and beneficiaries of, of that role. So, um, uh, preserving... The Communist Party of China is more important than preserving Hong Kong's democracy, and if it costs us Hong Kong, so be it. I think that that's the way it's seen in Beijing. It's certainly not the way I see it. Uh, how long before... Uh, it seems that this is inevitable, Charles. I mean, you know, you're talking about, I believe, 2047. Mm-hmm. Um, that's happening now, is it not? I mean, obviously, the next 10, 20 years... Uh, are just going to be more of the same, are they not? I, I mean, I think the one country, two systems thing is not going to last until 2047. I think that once this movement's put down, the Chinese government will take measures to retaliate against the people that have protested their rule and, and integrate Hong Kong into what they refer to as the Bay Area, which is all that part of Guangdong, including Canton and, and Macau, and to basically bring Chinese... Um, norms and economic standards um, into compliance in Hong Kong and Hong Kong as a days as a free economic area with political protections for their citizens will rapidly draw to a close. So I, I think I think the 2047 date really doesn't uh, have much significance anymore. Will the rest of the world become involved as Ch- uh, Hong Kong continues to deteriorate? I haven't seen that. Certainly, Donald Trump apparently has indicated to the Chinese leadership that they will not be interfering with Hong Kong so long as the trade discussions are going on. And I haven't seen any meaningful response from Britain, who, you know, has an obligation to Hong Kong through the the joint declaration of 1984 that, that set the criteria for the handover. And Canada, which endorsed that declaration when it was lodged with the U.N., certainly doesn't seem to be active in protecting the interests of the 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong or responding to the concerns of a comparable number of people in Canada who have Hong Kong roots. How long before we see an exodus from Hong Kong? 
I mean, you said you were already starting to see headquarters leave. How long before the people start leaving? That's a good question. And the other question is, will the government of China recognize the Canadian citizenship of persons of Chinese origin resident in Hong Kong? It appears not. And so we haven't been able to exercise our cultural, uh, I'm sorry, our consular rights over Hong Kong. Um, And I'm really wondering if push comes to shove and martial law is declared, will it be possible for those 300,000 people to get on airplanes and come home to Canada? Over and above that, whether they can get out or not, what's the chance of them getting their wealth out? Are I, they... think, uh, I, I mean, certainly a lot of those people have uh, wealth in various forms, but clearly if Hong Kong collapses and the, and the companies that have been the basis for Hong Kong's wealth um, lose their stock value because of political uncertainty, then a lot of people will be losing a lot of paper resources. Uh, are Canadians in Hong Kong preparing to leave, considering this will just uh, escalate between now and 2047? Certainly, survey data indicates that Canadians in Hong Kong are, are seriously thinking of locating back to Canada. For a lot of them, their, their lives are in Hong Kong, their careers are in Hong Kong, and they're hoping that Hong Kong will survive this. And I think a lot of them want to be in Hong Kong to, to stand with the movement and to make those protests, regardless of how unlikely it is that they will achieve their ends of getting, you know, a universal suffrage election for the chief executive and preservation of the independence of the rule of law and an inquiry into police brutality over the past 18 weeks of these protests. Uh, As you mentioned, it doesn't appear Donald Trump wants to get involved in this. He's more interested in a trade deal. Uh, What about past presidents or even a future president? Could that change? Could could that change all of this? If all of a sudden, if all of a sudden the United States starts speaking up, you know, you hope that politicians will stand for their principles. But uh, you know, money talks loudly, and in Canada, our China policy is largely dictated by concerns over. Canadian business who have extensive connections with Chinese communist business networks, promoting Canadian prosperity against an uncertain U.S. economy. And uh, I think less concern over matters of principle, Canadian values, if you will, human rights, and, and even standing up for cultural genocide against the Turkic Muslims in the northwest of China. We say a lot, We get together with our allies and issue joint statements. But when push comes to shove, we don't do anything that the Chinese government would really object to. Charles Burton has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University, uh, talking about China and issues with the NBA and South Park and how that's changing the discussion, if it is. Charles, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good to speak with you again. Hope we can do it again soon. We will for sure. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.